Greetings and a happy Easter. This is the Church's Changing Podcast. I'm Paul Nixon, and we welcome you to what is going to be a very interesting conversation with four people, three of the four I don't really know. And so it's a very organic conversation of us discovering a little bit about each other. The theme of this episode is stories of hope. And what I do know about these four people from four different annual conferences in the western part of the United States in the United Methodist Church is that there is a narrative of good stuff happening that is counter to the sort of woe is us and where did half our people go narrative that I hear so often right now within United Methodism. It's post-COVID and it's disaffiliation season and the world is going to hell in a handbasket, except not always. God is doing beautiful things with broken people. And so we're going to get to know four church leaders that are leading in four very unique places and who are discovering the new narrative, the new melody that God is revealing in this age, in Easter 2023. So I have pastors, Joel, Jane, Ryan, and Matt, and I'm going to let them just briefly introduce themselves. Joel. My name is Joel Arvizu. I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. And we are a newly combined church, if I can call it that. What's the name of your church, Joel? Oh, Maryville Bridge, United Methodist. Maryville Bridge. Yes, sir. Awesome. Okay. Jane. I'm the pastor of the United Methodist Church of Palm Springs in Palm Springs, California. And we're a, a congregation that's about 60. In, we're, in fact, we're exactly 60 years old because we just celebrated our 60th anniversary last fall. And we're about 200 folks about. And as I like to say, we are the church of gays, grays, and strays. Very good. Matt. My name is Matt Smith. And along with Linda Duhirsu, I serve as a co-pastor for a church in Sacramento, California that was planted back in 2010 called The Table at a historic United Methodist Church called Central. Very good. And Ryan. Yeah, I'm Ryan Canada. I'm the pastor and executive director at Free Spiritual Community in Denver, Colorado. And Free is a community for addicts, loved ones of addicts, and spiritual refugees. All four places sound so very interesting to me. So let's learn a little bit more. In a couple of minutes, tell us a little bit more about this faith community that you lead. What kinds of people are being drawn to the to the flame, so to speak? Who who are you seeking to serve and who's coming around? Any of you could start, but we'll start with Ryan. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we've been crystal clear about our mission. Our mission is to break the silence of addiction while creating space for healing, recovery, and spiritual connection. And we are a community designed for, just as I said a minute ago, addicts and their family members. So the people who love the addicts, the loved ones of, and then the spiritual refugees, and those are the people who have been uh, kicked around by religion. They've been told they don't belong. They've been told they're not welcome here. So the ones we, the, the ones that we are seeing and reaching out to very intentionally are those who don't really do church. They don't have a church background. So many of them do come in with, with some religious baggage. We see a lot of that. But so many others come in and they have just zero church background. And so they don't come in with all the baggage. They're just convinced God is against them. And they're convinced if they were part of some church, the church is against them too, because they have these very checkered past, or many of them very checkered present. But people whose lives have been really broken, disrupted by 
addiction. And I don't know what a, a addiction looks like in your community. I have a, a pretty good picture of it overall in, in our nation, and it's affected every community. So nearly everyone you talk to, everyone you encounter in whatever church setting you're in, they've been affected by addiction. And, and those are the ones those are the ones we want to have a voice with. Are folks engaging with you, Ryan, as a part of their recovery, or are they engaging with you often before they really move into the recovery season? You know, we have both. A lot of people look at free as a, it's it's supplemental to their recovery. It's a, it's a community where they know they're gonna they are going to be welcomed here. Many come in and and they're not yet clean and sober. They're working on it, or they've relapsed. We see a lot of relapse in our community, like in any recovery community. But our tagline here is we don't do shame, because so many people have been affected by this disease of shame and they stay hiding they stay in isolation and if you're battling addiction isolation is deadly it will kill you and we see that in this community so we don't do shame here when you come in free we talk openly about addiction and its effects and we talk about a god who is full of grace and love and all the things we need to recover and be restored what a blessing in denver matt what's going on in sacramento yeah, thanks, Paul. We planted the table back in 2010 out of a historic congregation. There were maybe 25 or 30 people there, mostly my grandparents' age. They were loving and caring, and they were really disconnected from the neighborhood around. So we're about a half a mile from Sacramento State University, not far from downtown Sacramento. And our initial concept was to root ourselves in the method and Methodism and to gather around Wesley's class meeting structure. And we started to call that a kitchen table. And so we started with one of those back in 2010. And then really worship for us came as a front porch to welcome new people into that place. So now at this moment, we have a couple of worship services on Sunday mornings and 26 kitchen tables. People meet weekly Mm -hmm. to hold their lives in conversation with the great commandment around Wesley's three rules and how it is with our soul. We've evolved like all of us have over this time, but in pandemic, especially starting an urban organic farm and then a social enterprise around artisan bread. Most of the folks that come to us have been wounded either recently or historically through their experiences with Christianity that had a very narrow image of God that said they were not enough as they were and who they were. They were not loved by God. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the work that we're involved with is meeting people in the reality of the hurts that we hold and how we bring that into this space and then allowing kind of the method and Methodism to remind us of who we are and whose we are as we figure out how to share life together. Matt, were you one of the founders? Yes, there were two of us. So kind of from the beginning, we were moving in ways that most people said wasn't wise. So uh, Linda Duhirsu, who's another United Methodist pastor here in this area, she and I started to work together. We saw that she'd be a chaplain for that historic community. And over time, over a couple years, that historic community actually welcomed the new church in and then became part of that new community. So we often call it now the table at Central United Methodist Church. Very cool. Pastor Joel. Yes. So I was appointed here to an aging Anglo congregation and a very vibrant Hispanic congregation, which had two of everything, two administrations, two boards, two leaderships, two everything. And the very first meeting with the Anglo board, they asked me the question and says, hey, we've been in conversations to become one, to unite, but we've been talking for years now and nothing happens are we going to do this or not? 
And so I was charged with that mission to make them one. And through a process of prayer and many different meetings and many different discussions, we decided unanimously that we wanted to come together as one church. Later down the road, I said, listen, if we are going to become one, Epworth, which was the uh, Anglo church name, I said, it doesn't mean a lot to many people unless you're a, you know, full-blooded Methodist. That doesn't mean nothing to anyone. I said, we cannot be called Epworth. And Nuevo Pacto, I said, well, that doesn't mean a lot to other people, especially if it's going to be Hispanic. I said, we need to become a whole new thing. And so I proposed the name Marybell Bridge with a vision behind it, which tied into our communion liturgy. You know, one with God, one with each other, one in mission to the world. Without even thinking, I said, man, we're the bridge, Maryvale Bridge. That's the community we're in. And I said, you know, we'll, we're building the bridge with God in our relationship with God and a building, building a bridge of relationship with each other and a bridge to the community. And it was, again, a unanimous thing. You know, it was a unanimous vote for the name. And we have been worshiping as a bilingual church because that was not the initial intent. That was further down the road. People said, man, we don't want to be worshiping here. Just 20 of us and 30 of us over there. Why don't we just come together? And so we tried it. We liked it. And we've been worshiping as a bilingual community of faith for a year now. And thanks to God, things are working. Things you know, like everybody else, we still have some challenges coming together and stuff, but God has been blessing us in this ministry of multicultural setting. We also have a, an African congregation here, and we worship together once a month, Hispanics, Anglos, and Africans, and we worship and have communion together, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Indeed it is. You, you know, in all three cases, there's a new thing that you've told about so far that has emerged ranging from 12 or 13 years ago to more recently, that, that God's creating a new community with, with, with people maybe that were, once they were not a people, but hey, now they are. Now, Palm Springs, 60 years the church has been around. What, what's new going on there? Besides the fact that the charter members ought to be getting close to the end of the run after 60 years. They are, and they're some of our most fun people. So, you know, that's pretty cool. Yeah, we, you know, we have a congregation that is, and it's even gotten older because, you know, 60 years ago, the community was more like with families and, and retirees. But as the housing has gotten more and more expensive in Palm Springs, there's few, just fewer and fewer young families of any sort that can afford to live in Palm Springs. And so we just don't have many kids. You know, we don't have any young people. Mm-hmm. So, you know what, we're... We're taking, what was his name? Uh, oh, who's the, who's the, oh, I can't think of his name right now because I'm old. See, and that's part of being a member, uh, a pastor of an old congregation. Everybody has to wear a name tag with their front, first name in big letters. So nobody forgets one another's names. And we just make t- plenty of time available for people when they can't remember that word. They just wait and come back around again. You know how that goes. Anyway, that's kind of an art form for us because we really claim that we're for older people primarily. And our younger people are the newly retired that are moving into our community so that they're the people that we're kind of like casting the net towards. And they're the people whose faith that we're developing and that sort of thing, which has actually worked really well. I would say that 
primarily our, our congregation are older folks who are re- newly retired and moved into this area that are super churched. You know, they're the people that love church and they're retiring and they want to find a good church where they can really sink their teeth into for this probably final phase of their life. And so we have them that are coming in. And we also then have, we continue to have a lot of gay folks, men and women that have been burned by the church and are looking, just looking forward to having church. Like we do pretty, it's a kind of a a laid back traditional service, but they love like feeling like they're getting to go to the church that when they were, you know, young people that they didn't feel welcome at, but we do all the bell choir and the old hymnal and all that stuff. And they love it. And then we have a, we, we do have a sizable group of folks that are unhoused that also worship with us because we have a very active and vital feeding ministry on our campus too. So they come for breakfast on Sundays and oftentimes we find them in worship too. And that's wonderful. They're all part of our happy family. For each of you, as you think about this last year, coming out of COVID, whatever that meant for your ministry, what's been, what's been the surprise in the, in the journey of the last year in the life of your church? What's been a surprise? Well, I would say for me, one of my surprises is, first of all, how for the most part really laid back my congregation was when we had to go under and we had to go on Zoom and live, you know, online. People, for one thing, my congregation, even though they're older and I thought, oh, they're not going to get the technology, they totally got it. And they were totally fine with the fact that we couldn't meet because of COVID. So I didn't have any or hardly any dissension about that on both. And I think maybe partly is because they're older and they're just laid back. And they're like, we've been around the block a few times. We understand. And so um, so that was just all of that a blessing. I think what we found is, you know, we, we keep hearing about this post-COVID world in the church and how growth is very difficult. And I get it. With, with church decline, church is dying. In many ways, I think churches should die. But we've experienced a a tremendous amount of growth since COVID. So people are still really hungry to be on a spiritual journey together. I have not found a hunger for church. I think, you know, and I'm a, I grew up in the church, so I can, I can speak to that experience. I think most of what happens in the church is not compelling. The mission is not compelling. The mission is every church has this mission of, well, we want to create disciples of Jesus. And it's like, yeah, I get that. Name me a church that doesn't want to do that. But what makes what makes what you're doing compelling in the world? Where are people saying, I want to be connected to that because that church or that organization is making a difference in the world, a positive impact in a place that needs it. So again, I go back to throughout COVID and post-COVID, we stayed really clear and faithful to our mission. So we've experienced a tremendous amount of growth in the last year. Uh, Our service is on Saturday nights, so that has, for us, that's grown. It was, for the last few months, it's been standing room only. We just added a second service last week, actually. But aside from just what happens during those services, we came in last year with three outside groups that were in alignment with our mission. That We now have 26 groups that meet here at Free that are all in alignment with the mission of breaking the silence of addiction. So recovery groups meeting here. We opened a coffee shop, a cafe that is now open from nine to nine. It started with smaller hours, but it's grown because more people are coming around the door. This is a safe space 
for people who really need safe space in the world, who can be open and honest with their story. And I guess that, that's a really powerful thing we found here is that people crave a community in which they can be really honest in, in which they don't have to wear a mask. They don't have to come and have all their ducks in a row. And if you talk to many people with church experience, it's kind of been the opposite. When they go to church, they have to they have to pretty things up. They have to change a language. And church teaches us how to do that. The songs we sing, it's not a language that's our own. Everything we've learned to do in the church is so distant from what we encounter in real life. I think until church leaders get honest about that, that, hey, this isn't resonating with people. It's not relating to people. And we've got to be willing to change everything. And People welcome that change. They're actually hungry for the change. If they have an experience that's authentic, it's real, we can be honest, and we can show our flaws. We can show that we don't have all of our stuff together, I'll say. Matt, what's been the surprise in Sacramento with Table in the last year? Yeah, the first that comes to mind actually goes back to March of 2020 when we started to close everything down. We had an opportunity urban organic farmer who had been farming on the backside of a Catholic school's play yard decided she was going to move back to the East Coast. And so they asked if for a dollar a year, we would take over the operation of the farm and grow food alongside neighbors. And so we said yes to that in back in April, just the month into pandemic. And so I think what I imagined, and it's dangerous to do that, what, what I imagined was that that would just keep thriving and going. And it is, it's this place where we connect with you know, 30, 40 folks come in for each for a week with volunteer shifts. Many of them are new. They're not folks that are connected to our community of faith. Most of them are high school students. And then about six months ago, I was leading a training out there around church planters and three white trucks pulled up and guys in orange vests hopped out. And it was pretty clear that they were surveying the land. And the Catholic church has decided that it's going to sell that space that we've been farming and growing food for an interfaith food bank. Uh, the end of this summer. So at first we went into panic mode because this felt like such an amazing new ministry to grow hundreds of pounds of food uh, each month for, for an interfaith food bank and to connect with neighbors. And what we've recognized is what a gift. While it's, a, it's like a microcosm of the church declining to a place to sell off land to address deferred maintenance. Um, so we're collateral damage of that as we lose the farm in that way, like so many urban farmers that we don't have easy access to that land. And as we've been listening to others, we are having now opportunities with folks in the city with different nonprofits that are coming forward. And we're being invited by multiple places to come think about farming alongside a food bank there. So instead of a food bank that would just have things that are left over from various places, we'd be growing food alongside neighbors to, to give away in that way. So we've gone from the panic of we're being displaced from this to the possibility that the farm could even become bigger than we've imagined. The adventure of urban agriculture, <laughs> the adventure of recovery and discovering that you can be authentic, the adventure of discovering that your best years are your last 25 and that church can just be a heck of a lot of fun. Joel, what 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 are you being surprised about in Phoenix? Well, last year, because we are such a new church coming together and the setting is so different and our backgrounds are so different, you know, Americans and Hispanics and Africans, 
I thought in my mind, I said, man, we're going to have so much pushback from the American people. I said, because, you know, going to a different language and this and the other, I said, man, we're going to have so much pushback. My surprise, they came alive. Mm. I mean, worshiping together brought them so much life and so much energy and so much hope for the ministry here. This church has been here since 1960. And there's folks here that have been here since 1962, still worshiping in this place. And so they they just loved it. And and they push for, for more growth. They still continue to sow their seed and, you know, give their money and time and efforts here. So that was the biggest surprise to me because I had, I said, man, we're going to have pushback and it's going to be this congregation because they're so traditional, right? Mm-hmm. And so we changed the the format of the service as well because I said, look, the Hispanics are are non-traditional. Their service has been non-traditional. We can't change to a traditional, but you've been traditional. We can't change all to a more contemporary one. So what do we do? So we compromised. So we do at least one hymn during the service. We do a call to worship, which is not a call to worship anymore because we can't do responses because we would wait for both languages or sometimes three languages to respond. So we said, we called it a worship proclamation. And that worship proclamation is one says it in English and then in Spanish, and then it becomes this, you know, drawing of people together. And that's been working great. That's been, to me, that's been the, the highlight. The fact that the Anglos were the more, for the movement and for the, the coming together than the Hispanics. That, that, that's been great to me. Yeah. Just a little bit of commentary here. About 10 years ago, we kept hearing that blended worship never works. It never works. Don't do that. <laughs> what doesn't work is closed hearts. Yes. And your people opened up to one another. Yes. And you created with God a new thing. And that's a, you know. Yes. You know. Yes. Okay. Yes. Four vital churches each totally different because God is just really, really creative. Each totally different. If I were to say, your your ministry sounds really vital, or no, maybe not me, but somebody else were to speak, speak of you because you each were referred to me by others. What are they talking about when they talk about vitality in your church? What do you think the, the word on the street is or at the conference office or wherever when, when we talk about that place is alive? Those are different questions. The word on the street versus the word in the conference center. Okay, I mean, <laughs> it should be a good word, even if it's a different word. But what? But, yeah. but what? What's the buzz out there? I mean, when we talk about your church being there's something good happening there. It's I mean, what? What are we? What are they? What evidence are they pointing to? Yes, Jane. Well, um, our church. Everyone comes and they says your church is so fun. It's so joyful. You know, you're not supposed to have that kind of fun at church, and and that's what we do. And we've, we've started adapting this idea that we're here to bring God's party. And I've been preaching about how the kingdom of God is like a party. And that, you know, that fits really well with the Palm Springs ethos. But then we look at like how God's party is not like a false party and all that sort of thing. And we really do like have, it's very colorful. And we still, yeah, we sing a lot of the traditional songs, but we, everybody sing, belts them out. And we do a lot of laughing. I come from a com- comedy background. And so we just... We have play games in the middle of the worship sometimes or, you know, just do things that kind of goose the tradition a little bit. And then we have a very, very active 
we're out in the community. You know, we have a very active feeding program. We're out there working with the African-American community. We're very active with that. And we've housed the homeless in the summer and we're kind of on the front line whenever the city has an emergency, we're there to help out with things. So, so it's an addition to about being really joyful and being really engaged in the community in a joyful way and with, with, with volunteers that are very, like very invested and both from our congregation and, and friends of the congregation that come in and it's their church. So that's what I'd say, both in terms of the on the street and at the conference level. Somebody else. Well, like, like Matt said, it's two different questions, right? So the conference is saying, man, this guy's doing great over there. Everything, you, you send people over there. You, you want like this recommendation for the podcast, you know, came from the conference. It's like, hey, you... You, you should be great. You're, you're going to be great with that. And anyways, but the word on the street regarding us, and I can tell you this by a testimony from a person that came by and said, hey, we would like to have a day, daycare center here. Would you be open for that? And I said, well, you know what? I have a meeting this weekend with the board. Let me bring it over to them and we'll let you know. We move forward that, with that. But she visited, this person visited our church. And she says, I tell you what, I've been to so many churches. And in some churches, you're just a zero. They don't even look at you. If you're not, if you haven't been there for a while, they don't even notice that you're there. Other churches welcome you, but in a weird way, they want you to stand up and say their your name and you know. And he said, Your church was different. Your church was very welcoming. Everybody approached me and said hello, introduced themselves. And I felt so welcome and so loved. And she says, this, this, mm. I cannot say this from, from many churches. And I said, well, listen, we've been pushing the vision thing. It's like, hey, build a breach, bridge with each other, build a breach with each other. And we have a one board setting here in our leadership. And, and I tell them, you be the one that says hello first. You be the one who's, who's the most welcoming. You be the one who, who, serves the most, gives the most, you set the example. And they are doing a great job of that. They are doing that. So we're a welcoming church to everyone. Beautiful. I think on a certain level for for us, when we, if I were to listen for what is it that people are actually drawn to, I think it's a longing to be authentically who they are and a place where we can come together and worship. And, and honestly, whether it's an online experience or an in-person experience, often people coming back to church, having been wounded by it or coming for the very first time, there's so there, it takes so much to cross the threshold, even just to look online. And so I think worship that is engaging the things that are going on in our local community and the world and inviting people into deep theological reflection about how God is moving in the world around them and within them. And then for us, it's that giving a clear step towards sharing life together in others by gathering and holding our lives in conversation with the great commandment, loving God and loving our neighbors and keep doing that over and over and over. And so there's a way in which going back to the great commandment is keeping our church alive and transforming the lives of, for me and for those that are in our community. And that is the vitality is holding our lives in conversation with loving God and loving our neighbors. You know, I would add when people walk into free on a Saturday night, I often hear the same message 
that they feel an energy. There's an energy here. And we, we, we picked up on this word. They started describing it as it feels like home. And I often wondered what people meant by that. What, what do you mean an energy? Is it just because it's, it's exciting or the, the speakers are a little louder, the music's a little more? I, I didn't know what they were picking up on when they, when they talked about this word energy. But what I've learned, it, it always goes back to that authenticity piece. And, and it's kind of an over, overused word now, right? But what I can tell you is we, we start out each Saturday night with celebrations. We celebrate. And I'm not talking we just celebrate grandma getting out of the hospital. That, that can be a good thing too. But, you know, last week we celebrated someone stood up and said they were seven days clean off fentanyl. Fentanyl is killing people. I mean, it's an epidemic we're living under in a community right now. Someone else stands up and says they're 30 days clean from heroin. Someone else stands up and says, I've got my kids back and I lost my kids in addiction. And they're feeling comfortable enough to say this out loud and not just in a room of 200, 300 live people, but a thousand more people online throughout the week. And they know that. And, and it's this call for me to be vulnerable and authentic. I, man, I was a drunk. I was a drunk pastor. Didn't know how to put down a vodka bottle, hoping you would never find out and hoping the church would never find out because I'd be rejected, lose a career and uh, live under shame. But when we can claim those things and say there's a God who welcomes us home, and that's a beautiful thing that creates energy. And then to end with, we end with heartaches. And again, it's not just grandma went to the hospital, but it's just this week. We had a 34-year-old uh, young man die of alcohol, uh, not from an accident, not because uh, it, it was a DUI. It was drank, literally drank himself to death. That's not an uncommon story in this community. So we do those celebrations and those heartaches together. And, and, and it really is about doing life together because those are the real things in this community. We have some really high celebrations and then we have death and isolation and destruction and losing our kids because of addiction. And when all that can come together and say, there's a God who still loves us, who still welcomes us home. And then there's no shame attached to that. Yeah, I understand why people talk about energy, why they talk, why they use the word home when they describe the experience, because it's what we long for. We all long for that sense of belonging and home and a God who loves unconditionally. And when we can proclaim that God in, in broken settings, yeah, energy. I don't know another word for it, energy. As I'm listening to each of you talk, there's a couple of things that, that are in common and probably we could come with, up with more. One is you each have taken your communities very seriously. Your ministry is rooted in the communities that you serve. One of you even named your church Bridge, you know, to that community. So I think one, and, and one of the reasons why your churches are so radically different is because you're rooted in your community. You're not some generic off-the-shelf thing from the Cokesbury bookstore. You know, you are so, so distinctive. It's a distinctive God thing. So there's that. But the other piece that I hear all the way around is gospel is getting translated into that cultural context in ways that are engaging people, to, to use Ryan's term, you know. That's a pretty mild term compared to what some of what you were just describing. But just to, gospel's engaging, and you're discovering that. You know, as you think about your experience, you think about a lot of churches out there that may be a little bit still fortress-like with a moat of emotional 
whatever around the church and a community that just is getting stranger to their sensibilities by the day. What would be your thoughts or your word based on your experience right now to a church that is a little bit somewhere between fearful and just perplexed in terms of how to rebuild a relationship with its community? Well, I think you have to start with loving what is and let go of what you think church should be and look around you and see what's my mission field and how's the Holy Spirit going to help us say yes to that. So I think that's that's a big thing. And, I, and I'm so grateful, you know, God blessed us with the idea of doing some, because I, I, I came to the church in 2018 and I said, we're in a good shape to do some strategic planning in 2019. And we did. And it just finished in November of 2019. So we already had like a strategic plan that was very ambitious that we could still work on during the pandemic. There were lots of things that we could still do, even though we weren't meeting in person. So we have like this plan already to like how we're going to reach out, both in terms of membership, but also in terms of reaching out into the community and, and creating some Jesus-sized projects ministry and mission for our congregation to sink its teeth into. So I would say that. And then just finally, and this is just me because I come from a background in comedy and I have done a lot of work on, on developing a comic perspective and theology and which is not necessarily just about laughter, but it's about, about embracing laughter as half of our life experience, right? There's the tears and the laughter and to, to really like encourage us to see how the Bible is actually written, to encourage us to, to lean towards the laughter, because laughter is all about surviving after we fall on the banana peel. And to come into ministry with that assumption that we're living in a world, we're living in a, rea- we know the reality is that after we slip on the banana peel, we're not going to get clobbered. You know, we're not going to break our neck. That's, and, and that's the way the universe is set up. And that's what the Bible wants us to accept. So it makes trying new things Less, less scary. It's like, well, we're just trying something and we'll go to the next thing, you know, and this is a very hope. We just continue to live in hope because we kind of see this world as a, as a, as a, a, as a much more benign universe than what the powers that be, even in the church, I think would have us believe that, that God is ready to do us all in, that the world is coming, you know, we're about to fall off the precipice and we all better get our acts together or else. And I, I see that at both ends of the theological spectrum, and that's not the comic perspective. So, Others of you, as you think about what are you learning that your church is learning that might be a witness for the, the isolated church? The word that comes to my mind is vision, because some of the, some of the congregations that have been the, you know, established for many years they they have lost their passion and vision. And if if we are to bring some hope into anybody that is, might be listening to the podcast, it would be your vision has to be real and connect with people. So when when I presented the vision of the bridge, there was a few of them. I didn't have to say anything. They just said it. Man, this is great. You know, a bridge has a vision of uh, uh, ways of connecting people in different ways and ministries and, and each other and this. And they just started dreaming about this. It just ignited something in their hearts. The vision has to be real. And then you have to stick with the vision. You have to stick with it. 
and you have to live it and breathe it and talk about it. And there's a there's a great book by Andy Stanley called Visioneering. I recommend it. And he says in that book that vision is like an, a bucket without a bottom. You always have to be filling it and filling it and filling it because people forget. And so if you want to reignite your church, it has to be a vision that people connect with and a vision that is real and a vision that you always pour into. That's what we, we've been learning. Beautiful. I think what I would say for churches that find themselves in places of isolation or disconnect, mostly what I would say is to the pastors, so much of our system in the United Methodist world incentivizes us for meeting the felt needs of the people that are already in our church. And the first thing that I would suggest is that we spend more time out in the world, hopefully far more time out in the world, connecting with the people around us, because people are longing to find deep, authentic ways to share life together with others, to make a difference in the world. We are broken in so many ways that we are longing to both be healed and then to join with others in healing. And when we spend our time filling out reports and having meetings together that try to make us look a certain way in the United Methodist system, all of that time is lost to actually meeting the neighbors around us who are longing to join with what God is already doing in our neighborhoods. And so Amen. for me, the vision is going to come for us when we when we stop trying to look inside and recognize that God is already on the loose out all around us. Yes. Everybody's nodding for, for those of you that cannot see faces. That Yeah, yes. we're getting universal nods in our group on that one. I was I was also thinking about how like I'm in the process of creating a little hymn like taking some of our hymns and and re reconstructing some of the lyrics to kind of make fun of all that like shall we gather at the meeting da, da. so we can all just kind of laugh about the the realities of that stuff you know which makes the dreadfulness about it a little less painful. Mm-hmm. Ryan Yeah, I would encourage uh, churches and church leaders and pastors to look for where's the real suffering in your community happening? Where are people dying? And it turns out God does pretty good work in in graveyards. Where's the death? Where's the suffering? Where can you be a voice of hope? And for pastors and leaders, a simple question I think we could ask is, are you are you a leader? And what I mean by that is, do people follow you? If you were to plan a party at your house— do people come? Or are you always trying to have to fight up? Is it a constant uphill, uh, upstream swim, trying to get people to follow? And if you're not that leader, you let others lead it and you step alongside of them. But I think it's it, we've got to take that piece seriously. We've got to take the party mm-hmm. seriously. We've got to take death seriously. Where can we be voices of hope? Yeah, I think I'll leave it there. When you say God does some pretty good work in graveyards, yeah, that's a good that's a good line. And the whole thought, when you think about what that means in terms of the community around us, the question that I hear you asking is, where do we need some Easter around here? Yeah. I mean, and, and it's not that hard to look around and to begin to realize that there are places, and they're pretty obvious in most situations, where we need some Easter. Yeah. And, and it's real. Easter, people love Easter when it's real. Not just Easter eggs, but the real thing. 
Yeah, pe- people are craving, they're craving a message of new life. They're craving those places of new life. Sometimes we as the church has, have made that really complex and difficult. We put all kinds of barriers up. People crave simple messages of new life, and we see mm-hmm. it everywhere. I, I think Matt was pointing that. We see God on the move everywhere. We've just got to start pointing to it. We've got to say, it's happening right here. It's happening mm-hmm. over here. Uh, like our job as pastors is we get to point to that and then tell the story and help others tell that story. But it's happening everywhere. I, I see it all the time with the most unlikely people. And what a powerful message then for the church that, as you called it earlier, Ryan, needs to die in so many ways that we're only going to find our way to that new life Correct. when we start yeah. paying attention to the actual experience of death that is all around us and within us all the time. And so it's not an easy fix to jump to that. It's mm. moving through the truth of where God meets us in the graveyard, which is a scary place. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Elizabeth McConnell, who would wrote a lot about the Church of the Savior, you know, but that great organization, that church from the late 60s. And I swear, I can't find it again, but I swear I read it in one of her books that she said that that church, like if there's a ministry that's founded like in the church that's no longer functioning, they have a like a ritual in their worship service where they 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 kind of do a little a little funeral for that ministry and they acknowledge all the great things that it did and now it's it's going to going to rest and something good will be on the other side and i just love that idea that that would be normalized in a congregation where people mm-hmm. would just say we tried this or this used to have a life and it doesn't and you know we're resurrection people so we trust that all that energy is going to go to something new. And if we could, as a con- as congregations, just own that no- that as our normalcy, as our you know as our new normal, then we mm. would be excited by the the new, somewhat recognizable but still unrecognizable new life that's more powerful than before. Which is always the the message of resurrection. It's not what it was like before. It's kind of recognizable, but not really. And it's so mm. much bigger than it was before. And we can look at that as a community as well as our individual lives and and the world. Friends, this is an amazing conversation with Matt Smith from Sacramento, Ryan Canada from Denver, Joel Arvizu from Phoenix, and Jane Voigt from Palm Springs, four Western pastors that are having a good time. And you you, you folks, you're you're blessed to be able to serve in the places you serve, but you're blessed, but you're also leading in a certain way that is living into the power and the hopefulness of Easter. And you believe in the gospel, and you believe that it has relevance in the lives of the people you're serving, and the people are coming around and responding to that. And this is a a word we all need to hear, that the 21st century is different than previous times, especially in the West. It's different. And People aren't just automatically tuned to, hey, it's Sunday, let's go to church. That's not the way it works anymore. And yet, ministry grows, gospel's real, and we celebrate with each of you. I'm Paul Nixon, and this is the Church's Changing Podcast, a ministry of the United Methodist Church. Church is Changing Podcast is a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Music is by Sanjay Singh. Visit all our podcasts at podcast.umcdiscipleship.org.